You're listening to Circle of Hope's Sunday Meeting Podcast. This talk was given at 3800 Marlton Pike. For more information, check out circleofhope.net or join us in person on Sunday at 10.30 a.m. or 7 p.m. To start things off, basically there's this character. He's Jonah, son of Amittai. And what he is, he's a prophet, which in biblical terms means that God literally speaks directly to him. Like how I talk to you, God speaks to him, which itself is just amazing. But what's interesting about his name, before we even get started, is Jonah, son of Amittai. Jonah meant dove at the time, is what the name referred to. And Amittai comes from the root word Amman, which means faithfulness. And so you have dove, son of faithfulness, effectively. This is character. And what he's doing is God says to him, what you're going to do is you're going to go and you're going to preach to the city of Nineveh. And essentially tell them that the city is going to be overturned. And through that, I'm going to save them. And at the time, the Ninevites, they were the most successful, most creative, brutal conquesting killers at the time. They had a city of more than 120,000, and they had a massive army that was known for their brutality. They would skin people alive, and that's just one of the many things they would do. They were horrible, horrible, brutal killers, but they were effective at it. And so Jonah didn't really want to go and preach to them. He didn't, he didn't want them to be saved. It's not that he was afraid because he knew that what God said to him was true. He knew that God would carry out his will. He more, he hated these people. He was like, here are these people that have killed generations of people that I've known and I've been surrounded with. And so Nineveh is in the east. He goes to go as far west as you humanly can at the time to Tarshish. So first he goes to Joppa. He boards this boat. And so he gets on this boat with these polytheistic sailors. They tell him a little bit about what's going on, why, what he's doing. He's running from his God. And then he goes below decks, and he does his thing. He nods off. And so the seas start to get rough, and they start to get even rougher. And then it's starting to look like the ship might capsize. And it's kind of, it becomes this dangerous, overwhelming storm. And so the polytheists, what they're doing is they're praying to all their different gods. Because in the polytheistic tradition, there's a bunch of different gods, and one of them is probably pissed off at you, because you probably did something stupid that they didn't like. And so what they're doing is they're praying to as many gods as they can think of, hoping that they cover the god that they upset. So as they're doing this, they notice, where's Jonah? They look around, and Jonah's below decks, and he's asleep. So they go down, and one of them wakes him up, and he's like, hey, who do you pray to? And so Jonah says, I pray to Yahweh, the god who made the land and controls the sea. And so the sailor realizes the irony at that moment that Jonah was fleeing from the god who controls the sea on a boat. <laughs> and so they essentially are like, pray, like, what are you doing? What do we do next? And so he says to them, well, God's angry at me, and so the only solution is you're going to have to throw me overboard. That's just how it is. That's, God's angry at me. It's my fault. And so they're like, we don't want to do this. They turn to the one god and they don't believe that it's right to kill Jonah, so they try and row back to shore, but they're unable to do so. The seas get too rough, and so they pray to Yahweh, and they say, please forgive us. You know, don't put this man's blood on our hands. We have to cast him over. That's all left that we can do. And they do so, and the storm calms, and they make it safely back home. And so while Jonah is, once he goes into the water, he sinks down and down, and then he's swallowed by a giant fish. And somehow, he's in, this giant, in the belly of this giant fish, and he's alive. 
And he writes this poetry. It's this long, beautiful poem about, Oh God, you have not forsaken me. I sank down and down. My head is wrapped in seaweed. But you saved me and you loved me. And It's weird because it's not quite a prayer of repentance for what he's done. It's more of kind of a call out like, Hey, I know you're Yahweh. I know you're the loving God. I know that you're going to save me from this predicament. And so... God commands the fish to vomit him up on a dry land. And so the fish pukes him out. He's on land, and God says to him, Look, Jonah, I'm going to tell you again. I told you the first time. You're going to go to Nineveh. You're going to preach to these people. They're going to be forgiven. So he goes into the city, and the city's about three, it takes about three days to walk across. It's this massive city, more than 120,000 people. He gets about a day's walk into it. So about, around about halfway into the city. And he says, he gives this sermon that in Hebrew is five words, in English it's roughly eight, which is, 40 days, the city of Nineveh will be overturned. And then he begins to leave. That's, that's it. There's no mention of God. There's no reason why. There's nothing they can do to be saved or to repent. He just says, hey, look, in 40 days, you're gone. And then walks off. Very strange, very strange behavior. But it makes sense in the character of a man who hates these people. He really doesn't like them. And so I think that even though he's been saved, he doesn't want to go and do what God told him to do. He's still kind of resisting it. He goes and does it technically, but not really. And so he goes up on this hill, and he watches. He's like, I'm going to try and watch and see what's going on, see what happens to the city. So while he's up there, he's tired and worn and sunburnt and just altogether not in good shape. Joe's not having a good time. He's pretty miserable sitting under the hot desert heat on this mountain. And so God brings up a plant, and this covers over Jonah. And Jonah is shaded from the sun, and he is, just expresses, oh, I'm so grateful to have this plant. This is wonderful. It's amazing that I have this thing. And so a day later, God sends a worm that eats the plant, and then Jonah's under the sun again. And he says, you know, this, this suffering is too much. I'd rather be dead, is what he says. And so he prays to God, and he kind of chews him out. He's like, God, I knew... So he does this, these people are forgiven. The Nevites, what they do is they turn, the greatest and the least, even from the people all the way up to the king, he steps down from his throne, covers himself in burlap, and fasts for seven days. They even make the cows fast. Like, everyone in the city is fasting, and they turn to the one God. And so Jonah's response to this is he chews God out. He's like, what are you doing, man? Really? Like, you're so loving and slow to anger, and you would forgive these people, and it's not fair. These people have done horrible things, and I, I just can't believe how weak you are. You would go and do this. And so God puts it to him. Well, Jonah, you didn't create the plant. You didn't destroy the plant. Yet you loved it. You knew it for a short time, and you loved it. Like nothing else. Could it be, Jonah, that I could love that city of more than 120,000 people just like you love the plant, just like I love you? Hmm. And we never hear Jonah's reply to that question which is interesting. That's where the story leaves off. But so what I gain from that is there's, there's this ridiculous character of Jonah. He's Dove's son of faithfulness, who is the least faithful character in the entire story among all of these polytheists and murderers. He is the least faithful one of all of them. And this whole time, he's so stuck in his way of what he's doing that he continues to drift further and further away from what God's trying to tell him to do. And... What I was doing with that this week is I was thinking about that of my intention that I ascribe is that I want to be closer to God, I want to live a life that's filled with God's love and God's grace, 
and I have a rough understanding of what it means to do that. And frequently when I don't pay attention, I find myself drifting, you know, kind of sinking down and down into the waters, further and further away from this message of like what God's trying to do, and further and further away from what even I myself have claimed I intend to do. And so I kind of see myself as Jonah in this story in some ways, but I think that there's redemption for that. I think that because our God is so loving and slow to anger, that one, I'm forgiven for those mistakes, and two, that there's something bigger than me that will continue to pull me in the right direction and continue to guide me to the kind of life that I want to live. And so what I'm curious to ask all of you is do you see any Jonas in the world that you'd like to share to open up the floor? Is there any place in the world where you see this happening? There's the stated intention of what it is that you want to do or what it is that someone wants to do. And they, their actions, through them, they drift further and further away. Literally every single politician ever. That's a, absolutely. I, I 100% agree. That is an excellent point, Matt. Um, I'm, I'm thinking of Don Quixote. You guys know about Don Quixote? He's a Spanish character from like the Middle Ages, like a classical text. Um, like the, the King Arthur of Spain, except that he's kind of the same kind of ridiculous, he's a ridiculous fool. He's, he's trying to do things that are beautiful and amazing, and he's turning everything into this like epic drama. Um, so like, have you ever heard the, the, the phrase tilting at windmills? No. That, that means like go at jousting with a windmill because uh, there's this famous part in Don Quixote where he charges it to attack these windmills because they, he's traveling and these, these things that he's never seen before must be um, enemies. You know, he's trying to find, trying to find this, uh, 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 this story for himself. And he wants to be valiant. Um, and but, you know, people have written books and books and books about whether Don Quixote is a hero or not. Because should we be so, like, um, uh, idealistic, you know? Should we be, like, yeah. should we be projecting onto the world um, and not actually achieving anything? So Jonah's, Jonah's a little bit like that because he, he's a, he's a self-styled prophet, I would say. You know, like, he, for some reason, has this intimate connection with God, and that's about all he has going for him. Um, so that, that, uh, that poem that you mentioned where he's like being rescued from the depths and there's no repentance and and uh, um, you know he goes in watches Nineveh turn to God like crazy and still is pissed that the the vine withered you know he just doesn't learn anything um, so I think he's kind of like Don Quixote and in, in, in some sense I'm still trying to decide if he's a hero or not so, you know, I'm like, I guess, I guess I would say like maybe like Batman or something like that, you know? Is he, is he like, is he a vigilante or is he like the best person in Gotham? I mean, I think that's not even really in question. He's definitely the best person in Gotham. <laughs> the police are corrupt and don't do anything to Did stop the guy who bombs everyone. Did you see the Batman Lego movie? No. 
You should. You're, you're, All I know you'll, is you'll the Joker is like Pablo Escobar. <laughs> and he literally terrorizes the entire city and bombs them. And the police are like, well, maybe we shouldn't do anything about that. We're going to let Batman handle all that. Let's not have a Batman debate, but I'll tell you later why you're wrong. <laughs> I think Jonah's interesting, too, because um, it's, it's an example of satire in the Bible. I don't think it's meant to be taken literally. I don't think that literally a man was swallowed by a fish and stayed in his stomach for three days and was vomited out. I think that this is more, it's a satire to create this ridiculous character yeah. that we can kind of laugh at. And I mean, even as much as the details in the story, the simple details, um, the way that things are described in Hebrew, instead of saying very, you just say something again. So instead of a very big church, for instance, or like a very big fish, or a very big city, it's just a big, big city. And what you see in the translation is in the Hebrew, all the details, the words are used two or three times. Oh, it's yeah? These exaggerated details. So it was a big, big city, or it was a big, big, big fish. And it's like... I think it's meant to Yeah, because what city takes three days to walk across, even like today? Yeah, that's, that's yeah. false, Like Houston, you could walk across in one day. You know? Yeah, so it kind of creates this ridiculous image for us of like this, this upside-down world where the polytheists are showing the believer in the one God how to be loving and compassionate, and everything is massive into this strange proportion. And we're supposed to laugh, but I think the moment that we laugh at Jonah is the moment the author of the story has us. Because what he's trying to point out to us is that in some ways, we're Jonah. Yeah. We are that person. And that's, that's the thing is we want to laugh at, oh, look at this idiot. You know? And then you take a minute and you're like, wait a minute. Sometimes, in some situations, <coughs> I'm that idiot, kind of, at least. And I think that there's something bigger than that to save us from that. And that's, that's kind of where it's going. It's like, God forgives them anyways. But I think it's good to recognize that, yeah, sometimes I'm kind of a fool. That happens. And it's good to be aware of that and to look to God's word to humble myself to that, to be open to things outside of my predetermined path, things that I've determined are right or wrong. What you got? Yeah, I was just going to say, um, when, it, when I've gone through, Johnny, and even just like your, uh, your we going through it now, there's a lot of the expression of forgiveness um, you know, God's forgiveness and that Jonah doesn't have it, right? Uh, or doesn't want to express it on these particular people. Um, and I just kind of was thinking, like, how often do we, do we go about God's work and yet we still hold bitterness in our hearts towards people? Whether it's somebody that harmed us in the past or, um, you know, a coworker or a boss, whoever... Maybe it's even a spouse or, or children, whatever. It doesn't matter, right? But we have this this bitterness that's festering inside of us, and yet we go and and do God's work here and there. But then when God's like, okay, that person that you've been holding bitterness towards, I want you to go witness to them so that they can become saved. And how hard it is internally to to like your immediate reaction, your knee jerk reaction is is Jonah's. No. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> I already know that you can forgive, and, you know, because uh, you did it to me, you know, and for, and for me. Um, but I hate that, and I want them to be in hell, so I'm not going to go there. Um, but, but God is, um, <clears throat> I think another part of it, though, is that despite Jonah's um, 
despite Jonah's bitterness and his decision to go the other way, um, God still orchestrates it that he ends up where he wanted him in the first place. And he still has to do the thing that he was called to do in the first place. So it would have been, you know, that there's almost like, I'm not sure that it's the only moral of the story, but you could say like one of the morals of the story is, is just go do what God says to do in the first place and you won't have to go through all these extra troubles, right? Mm -hmm. um, because it's gonna happen anyway, because he said so. <laughs> yeah, I think yeah. It's, it's interesting too how he kind of, he takes our bad, right, our evil, our misintention, like Jonah goes and preaches this confusing sermon that no one, at least in our current understanding, could possibly get it what, like, how to respond to that in order to humble themselves to God. And yet they do it anyways, because God's working in them. And so he takes our evil intentions and makes good out of them anyways. And that's what's interesting to me. It's like, like you said, of how eventually things end up how they were orchestrated anyways. What you got, Justin? I, um, Jonah's such a weird story. <laughs> I always kind of yeah. thought it was one. It's one of those ones. I'm like, why is this like in the Bible? Um, but there's one thing, and I don't know if this is like slightly, if I'm slightly off base. But when I read it, one of the things I took out of it or felt about Jonah was he kind of had that like he went in there and like preached to like, all right, guys, like this, you guys are trash, and God's gonna destroy everything, and that's it. So, guess what? And then they, in fact, repent. And even though he just kind of, like, phones it in, and he, I think he was, like, there was part of it where I was reading where it seemed like he was mad at God because, one, he told everyone that, like, look, get ready for some thunder and lightning, and then nothing happened. So everyone was, like, looking, you know, he's going to have that great. Now everyone thinks that I'm just, like, a false prophet, who comes in here preaching, you know, and, and God, isn't that like what you do? You, 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 you throw lightning bolts and you, you, you cleanse the non-believers, you know? But, and it, he kind of, the parallel that I was reading, why, why it seemed important is it kind of puts some context for me. Like it reminds me of like a Judas character, like who expected, like when Jesus was like, I'm gonna die, that's how I'm doing this. That's how I'm the Messiah, is, is through, this non-violence and this in my own death and judas was like no you're not like that was this is not i just, you know you're supposed to be our conqueror you're supposed to free us from the oppression of the romans you know and i mean i don't know the like geopolitical aspect of like the you know of um the ninevites like were they like the most, you know, like you said, they were like the most feared people around. They were like kind of the, the big baddie. They were the government. They were the everything. And and God's way of bringing salvation to them from their like destruction was through peace and, and love and, and repentance and, and you know, um, reconciliation. And Judas was mad about that because he was like, that's not, that doesn't, you know... That's not what I promised them. I promised them, like, a smack across the head, you know? And I think it's this, this allegory of, like, what God's love is like. 
you know, and that, and like kind of this cautionary tale to, you know, be like, you know, that's the message he's got saying to Jonah at the end. It's like, yo, dude, you, uh, don't you see? <laughs> like, think about how you felt about that plant, you know, and like you didn't, no one deserves, you know, the shade just as much as no one, you know, like I'm the one who decides how things go, you know, and like it was like a checking himself kind of thing and it just kind of leaves it up to, you know, like I said, I think the reason there's no answer is because like Jonah is like, if it's a lesson, you know, this like oral history that's being passed down, you know, Jonah's supposed to be like each, into, you know, you're telling it to someone like, this is you, you're Jonah in this story, like you are the Jonah when someone's like telling you the story of Jonah. You know, and that's that's the perspective I think you're supposed to have. Like, how am I like him, you know, when I'm trying to, uh, you know, he was trying to bring salvation, and he was saying, like, yeah, because you're going to get destroyed, but never offer them, you know. And obviously Jesus is the, you know, that bridge there. Yeah, so I think a little bit more meta, Ben. <laughs> yo, yo, real quick, yo, Jesus, yeah. Jesus did, you know, tag Jonah himself. He yeah. Said, you want a sign? I'll give you the sign of Jonah. You know, wait, wait, I got a, I got a good one. All right. All right so, in both instances where Jonah had a revelation, he was asleep. Now, what if it was actually his subconscious trying to teach him why he was wrong? Because if God wanted to tell him that you're wrong, he could just say, you're wrong. And Jonah would be like, yeah, you know what, you're probably right. I mean, yeah. But, like, what if he, he realized what he did was wrong, and then on both occasions he was trying to figure out, like, shit, I was wrong. And he was asleep both times, though. Because every each time he had a revelation, it mentioned that he was asleep. Yeah. So maybe his brain was trying to convince him, "This is why you're wrong, man," and that's why you should follow God. Because otherwise, you're just going to be like, "Oh, I mean, I got to do it anyway, so why not?" Yeah, I think that's an interesting concept. I think because it's uh, it's a parable. I think that like the author, it's not a literal thing. So I think the author doesn't know that though. As as far as I can tell, based on the way it's written and the way it's referred to, I don't think that it's implied as a literal event. I think that it is very much a parable, and in, like with all the details that are ridiculous and that are larger than life, I think it's it's the story. But the point of that being, I think that the author's intention was that oh well, something that he saw that got orchestrated made this change. That's just my take on it. Yeah, but I mean, my experience with God is it, it takes a lot of different angles. So dreams, subconscious, oh, yeah. uh, caribous, you know. <laughs> I, need it, I need it all to kind of get the word. That was one thing you said, Tristan, that I kind of took issue with. You said, like, like, a prophet is, like, someone that, like, talks to God just like we talk. And, like, maybe, or maybe it's like the Russell Crowe Noah. Did you guys see that movie? <laughs> Uh, I like I like all these modern interpretations of the Bible. I've been watching A.D. Kingdom and Empire, and also now the Bible, which is the precursor to A.D. Kingdom and Empire. Bible not as good, but talking to God, like the people in the Bible, are real people, and so the experiences that we have when we're like hearing from God, because there are some points in my life where I will say I heard from God. They're few and far between, um, and I don't, you know, write you know, a scroll of poetry about it. So I guess I'm not a prophet. You should. But, you know, these people were extra special. They did have, like, a pulse. And God was using them in, like, a really powerful way. 
But I think the experience of God as human beings wasn't too dissimilar from ours, you know? And so, like, you know, the Russell Crowe Noah, he, like, he hears from God, and he's like, what the heck was that? Because what do you do? Like, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, it was God. <laughs> you know, like, I'm going crazy. I don't know what's happening. I'm supposed to build a boat. I keep dreaming about this boat. Why do I keep thinking about this boat? And then, like, what am I supposed to do? And he goes and gets high with his Uncle Methuselah. And it's like, you know, like, like this kind of peyote dream. Like, totally weird stuff. But maybe, you know, like, it's this, it's this very human, very in-the-earth experience. And like, like you said, Jonah's probably a parable. But there are other prophets that there's, like, even some archaeological evidence that these were real people. I'm thinking yeah. mostly, like, uh, it, uh, Jeremiah, Isaiah. Those people are you know, have some historical context. And uh, they, you know, they probably talk to God a lot like Tristan does, you know, in, in some ways. So that's my, uh, that's my take on what, what a prophet's life is like. Yeah. I have one more takeaway that I kind of, I, I pulled out of the story, and that is that God loves the people that you don't like, right? And that, that's, we all kind of get that. But also what that means is that we have a sense of what's just and what I feel a lot of times we get trapped in and we have our time because it's really hard to love the people you don't like. But I think it's the people that's it's most important for us to love the people that we don't like a whole lot. Because it's really easy to love the people that love you back. But it's much, much harder. And it's much more transformative to love the people that you don't like or that don't like you. Yeah, Tristan, when you and I were talking about this earlier in the week and you, you sort of explained that point, I really I really uh, I've been thinking a lot about that all week. It's extremely challenging to find who it is that you're kind of subconsciously rooting against, you know? And like, how do you, uh, you sort of become aware of that and you realize, well, God's not doing that. That's not, that's not what God's doing. God's not rooting against these people. God might even want me to go and help them, you know, like the Ninevites. That's, that's powerful stuff. For me, I've been like, uh, I really appreciate you saying it. Um, bring it to us tonight, because I've been thinking a lot about it all week. Thanks, man. I'm glad it has worked with you. It's certainly been working with me, because I, I kind of, I get in these moments, I get in these spaces, especially a lot of times with, like, if I have a thing that I've spent a lot of time uh, getting into, either participating in, or reading about, or discerning about, I can kind of get locked in my opinion on this thing. Of like, oh, well, I think, I think I'm right. I think we all kind of naturally do it. I think the more disagreeable of us do it more than everyone else, but... I'll get like, oh, I'm right. And so that becomes, in my mind, justification to then explain to someone else why I'm right, however harshly I feel like doing it. And God's not in that. Right. There's, I think there's a time to explain. I think it's important to explain your different difference in opinion. But I think that there's a loving and unloving way to do it. And I find, if I'm honest, oftentimes I end up down an unloving route because I'm so fervent about this thing that I've held on to, this thing that I've established that isn't from him necessarily, but is worldly. It's something that I care about here. I think it's important to have that perspective of like, no, well, you know, God's bigger than that. And he's going to love those people I disagree with just as much as he's going to love me. It doesn't make me any more right in his eyes. You know, I think it's important to kind of drop that division that I might lean towards. Of like, oh, well, maybe it's not sides here, right? Maybe it's not left versus right. Maybe we're all kind of doing this. And, like, maybe we can come together on that. It's been really convicting for me to realize, to, to see how many. I, 
like seeing how clearly I can There are a lot of people I dislike. <laughs> like, wow. I didn't, you know what I mean? I didn't realize, when you start thinking about it like that, it's been really convicting. What does that, that say about me? Good stuff. Anyone else got any thoughts, ideas? Thanks so much for uh, letting me talk to you and share that with you. Thanks for listening to Circle of Hope's Sunday Meeting Podcast. If you want to talk about it or get connected to a cell, you can find one under our Connect drop-down at circleofhope.net.